All right, so today we begin a brand new series. You guys excited? We're going to do the book of Jonah. Uh, Old Testament, what we really hope is to, to know the heart of God towards the lost, to see his relentless love for his creation. And the goal is that we would take our hearts and we would more closely reflect the heart of God. His relentless love for people is something that is supposed to be passed on to his children. There is supposed to be a legacy. If, we're, if he's our father and we're in his children, we should look like him. And so this relentless love that God has, he tries desperately uh, to get Jonah to catch on to it. And there are a lot of times in this book, if you're familiar with the story, where he does not want to look like his father in this regard. And truthfully, there is a lot of times where you and I might talk a big talk, but do we really want to look like God in this regard? Um, this week, the president of Alpha Ministries, you may have heard of it before, he was speaking to the staff of World Vision up in Federal Way. And my new friend Gary Malhaf was there in attendance. He snapped this photo for me that I found to be heartbreaking. In it, uh, he was saying that 40% or 47% of practicing Christian millennials say it is wrong to evangelize someone. Yet nearly 94% of them say the best thing that could ever happen to someone is to know Jesus. Do you see the disconnect? Do you see the gap between uh, what our faith can be and what our action actually is? The the gap between the Father's relentless love for others and our quite pitiful love for others, and the gap between what Jesus commands and what we're willing to do and actually obey. This is something that we can't be okay with, and this is something that we can't go on with. God wants, as Christians, for us not to just talk a big game about evangelism, not just talk a big game about reaching our community, but to actually play the game, to get into the game. I believe the book of Jonah is going to challenge each one of us to really examine our hearts. Do we really love the lost? And are we really doing everything we can to preach the good news of God's relentless love to those around us? Or are we in that place? Have we found ourselves in that place of the reluctant prophet Jonah? My goal, I think God's goal is that the relentless love of the Father would inspire us to have a relentless love to those who need the gospel. Today's big idea is simple. Get up and go. <laughs> There's a point in time when you're trying to get your children ready for school, when you're trying to get your children ready to go to the park, when you're trying to get your children ready to go to church, or maybe it's just you're trying to get yourself ready. When you have to just go, all right, it's time to just get up and go. All right, we've dilly-dallied around, we've talked about it, we've hemmed and we've hawed. It's just time to get up and go. It's the command that God gives Jonah in our text. We're really only going to examine the first two verses of the text. The biggest command is in there of the whole book. But we're also going to get a little bit of history on the book of Jonah so that we can really have um, some understanding that will inform our study of the whole book. You guys ready? Get up and go. Here we go. Jonah 1, 1 through 2 
If you don't have a Bible, we have a uh, grab a Bible table right over there. Feel free to take one and keep it as your own if you don't have one at all, or if you just want to look in a paper copy of God's Word. But don't worry, we've got it on the screens as well. Here's what it says in Jonah 1, 1 through 2. <coughs> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, get up and go. That great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The, many of the prophets, <coughs> the books that we call the prophets, they begin this way. Um, a prophet, essentially by definition in the Old Testament, was one who received a special word, a special revelation from God, and their job was to communicate that message to God's people. Um, typically, that was the formula, too, that the message was specifically to God's chosen people, Israel, which brings us to one of the first really unique things about the book of Jonah, and that is that his message was for a pagan city and a pagan nation. So it's not exactly according to the normal formula of a prophet. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a bit. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, we, we've lumped the books to kind of together into categories uh, to make it easy to organize. <coughs> and Jonah is part of what we would call the minor prophets. Uh, they're minor, not because they're less important than the major prophets, um, but honestly, just because they're shorter. <laughs> I mean, seriously, they, were, they all fit into one scroll for the, for the Jews back in the day, just neatly fit in there because they were shorter. And so those, those 12 were called the, the minor prophets. They do still have major messages for us. Um, Jonah was a prophet during the reign of the Israelite king Jeroboam I. Jeroboam was not a good Israelite king. And we'll, again, we'll talk more about that in just a second, too. He was one of Israel's worst kings, actually. And the timing, if you're interested in history, is somewhere between 786 and 746 B.C. So there's a little background for you. A lot of you guys, how many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah and the whale or slash fish? Okay, I figured it'd be just about all of us. <coughs> it, it's, it's a pretty widely known story. Uh, but there are a couple things to note as we begin the study. First of all is the Sunday school version that you've probably heard is not the version that's in the Bible. It, it, that's G-rated, and it's okay to have G-rated stories for the chitlins, right? We don't need to tell them all the gory details. But the story of Jonah is a little bit more PG-13 or maybe rated R. There's some crazy stuff that goes on. Um, the second thing to talk about that I think is pretty important, in my opinion, is that there are a lot of people that don't believe the events of the story are actually legitimate. They would prefer to look at the story of a man being swallowed by a giant fish and surviving for three days as a lovely parable or an allegory. Um, that it, It's a fable that's it's meant to teach us a lesson. And people will start their sermons by saying, well, there's no way that we can know if it's really real or not, but we can still learn from it. Uh, personally, um, I disagree with that theory. Personally, I think there are some very compelling reasons to believe that the story is fact and not fiction, and that it may even be better for us if we believe that. Uh, the first is the place. God tells him, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. 
Well, Nineveh was the actual capital of the Assyrian Empire. It was a real place. In fact, Nineveh was built really early in human history. Back in Genesis 10, a guy named Nimrod, which has become an insult that we use for each other. Yeah, Nimrod. Uh, a guy named Nimrod built the city. Uh, he was a great hunter. And obviously it started out small, much like Olympia or Lacey was, was small when it began and, and blossomed and grew. So by the time Jonah comes around, it's actually the capital of this vast empire. It was located in what is now Iraq, modern-day Iraq, uh, very close to the modern-day city of Mosul. There's actually a lot known um, because of uh, some pretty amazing archaeological digs that went on. So there's a, a good amount known about the city of Nineveh. I'm not going to give you a lesson on how the walls were built because that's not very interesting. But the most important thing to note is that it was the seat of the Assyrian Empire and that empire was pretty dang powerful. It actually lasted 2,000 years, the Assyrian Empire. So Nineveh is the capital city, and that is where God calls uh, Jonah to go and preach against this Assyrian nation. Guess what? Get up and go. Guess where you're sent? A capital city in the, in the heart of a great state and a great nation. Do you see some parallels? All right. Um, Nineveh ultimately was destroyed, the city, about 150 years after Jonah preached to the city. Um, why? Well, uh, despite their initial repentance, spoiler alert, they're going to repent. Uh, despite their initial <laughs> repent, <laughs> I didn't see the movie yet, Kevin. Why would you got to spoil the ending? Uh, despite a, a good initial repentance, it wasn't very long before they began actually ramping up their attacks on Israel and Judah. So apparently, even though their repentance was authentic, it was also short-lived. So Nineveh is a real place. In fact, there's in, uh, in that area, in Mosul, a shrine to Jonah. This is a picture of it. That's um, contemporary evidence for Jonah's reality. You don't usually make shrines or uh, look for places to bury fictional characters. It's typically the real people that you do that. And it's thought that uh, Jonah's either buried near here or maybe back in his hometown. People aren't sure. Or, um, but the best evidence is not just that he had a shrine or that, that Nineveh was real. I think the best evidence that God um, put this into the canon of Scripture for for a reason and that it's a real story is scripture itself, which is where we're going to go next. Let's just real quickly read 2 Kings 14, uh, verses 23 to 25. In the 15th year, Jeroboam, that was the king during Jonah's reign uh, or life, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. Um, first and second Kings, they're books of history. They're not recording fictional characters. So we have right here... Um, Jeroboam, this evil king uh, who did what was evil on the side of the Lord. And even though he was able to restore the border of Israel, 
Um, the prophet Amos will later receive a word from the Lord and all those lands will be taken back, the lands that the word of Jonah brought forth. So already we kind of grow suspicious of this prophet Jonah since he was instrumental in helping an evil king. Um, but we have right here, again, a historical record of Jonah and Second Kings. And, and that's not even the most convincing biblical support for the legitimacy of our story. I'd say the most convincing is the words of Jesus Christ himself. When the crowds were increasing and Luke records, he began to say this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Uh, the generation Jesus was ministering to, they, des they desperately wanted proof. They wanted a sign. In fact, the proof that they expected was that the Messiah or the Anointed One was going to come in and uh, upset the politics. Essentially have a military victory and a political victory that would put him on the throne and Israel on the throne of the world and, and they would rule and reign all of mankind as the Israelites. But in fact, Jesus, uh, he was preaching against wickedness and he was calling for repentance of the heart. And Jesus' victory would be a spiritual victory for all mankind everywhere who would believe in him. So just like Jonah and Nineveh who repented, this is what Jesus wanted was repentance, was hearts change, etc. And so uh, there's actually a longer version even of this statement in Matthew 12 where it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus knew that even though he preached repentance, that the generation he was in, he was preaching to, they were not going to repent. They were not going to turn to the one true God, at least not most of them. And he says that the men of Nineveh will actually stand up and prophesy or, or judge them, condemn them. Because even though they were Gentiles, they did repent at the words of Jonah. And this was just Jonah, the reluctant prophet, the one that really didn't even want to go and only half-heartedly said, yeah, repent or die, I hope you die. I mean, he, he didn't even want him to repent. This generation Jesus was taking to, talking to had the son of the living God. The creator of the universe was standing right there. Jesus, who spoke things into existence with his father, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, is preaching repentance to them. Best orator ever compared to Jonah, and they won't believe. So Jesus says, comparatively speaking, you guys don't even have a clue. Um, I added verse 42 for a reason. You might have thought, this is weird because we were talking about Jonah and now we've got the, the queen of the south and we've got, the, and, and we've got uh, Solomon and all that kind of stuff. Here's, here's the thing. Jesus uses more than one example here in his, in his proof text, right? The fact that people who had way worse, uh, only human 
preachers repented, and then there's you guys who have me, fully God and fully man, preaching to you. You can't repent. He used more than one example. The Queen of the South was a real person. Solomon was a real person. Likewise, we knew that Nineveh was a city, and Jesus is bringing Jonah and Nineveh into the same conversation as Solomon and the Queen of the South. So there's really nothing in Jesus' words and using Jonah as an example that has any fable quality to it. It seems like in Jesus' eyes, who would know this was a real deal and a real guy? <laughs> and honestly, I, I build this case for a reason. I, th- I think that there's a deeper level th- in which we can learn from this story when we truly believe that it's real. To understand that Jonah was a real guy with real struggles. Just like the struggles that this real guy and that real gal and that real guy have, especially when we're called to go preach on God's behalf and we're a little reluctant. I think there's a deeper understanding that we can have and hopefully move past those struggles so that God can use us to bring people into his kingdom. Amen? All right, let's keep going. So we got Jonah the prophet. He's called. He says, get up and go. Say it with me. Thank you. You're awake. He's sent to Nineveh, this capital city, and he's told to call out against it. Uh, as, as we've alluded to, as you probably know, Jonah struggled with this command. And honestly, if, if you think about it, I think we all struggle with this command. <coughs> call out against it. Call out against sin. That sounds horrible. It's scary. In fact, it conjures up images like this, where we've got so-called Christian crazies out there telling people God hates you and he condemns you and preaching violence and and nastiness and and not the grace and love of God. And we think, I don't want to be lumped in with that. I don't want people to think I'm that. How can I call out against sin? Because if I call out against sin, then people are going to think I'm against them and I just don't know if I can do this. Well, like I said, we're also in a very strategic city, and we've been called to get up and go and to call out against sin. So it's not just that we have an option to say, no, thank you, Lord. We need to figure out how to do that in a way that shows both the truth and the grace of our God without compromising on either one and call people to know the solution to sin. The one that eradicates sin, Jesus Christ. There are those who's given a black eye to the church. And it's not too hard to understand why so many people detest the church or religion or Christians. But we mustn't, we cannot allow poor examples such as the ones we just saw on the screen scare us away from the call of God. Because we live, truthfully, we live in a post-Christian era. This is a post-Christian era. Gone are the days when church is uh, something that everyone kind of does. Gone are the days when the Bible was actually admired and respected among the general population. Gone are the days when the name of God was revered in our country. 
But what's the proper response to these truths? Is it to rail against our country? Is it to rail against the culture? Is it a hatred or a message of doom? Is it is it fear and inaction because we're kind of outnumbered? Is it to throw our hands up in the air and, and just give up? Or is it something far more powerful than that? Is it a call from God to get up and go and preach the good news? The message that we have through Jesus Christ is so much better than what Jonah had to do. He just had to say, hey, guys, repent or you're dying. All right, that's that's what's going to happen. You need to turn your ways or God's going to destroy your city. Good luck with all that. We know that the creator of the universe has given us life through Christ. And that life from here on out can be not lonely and not scared and not intimidated and anxiety-ridden and depression-ridden, but with purpose and with truth, with confidence, with the Holy Spirit optimism. We are messengers of good news. Jonah's called to go talk to them because, as it says here, they're, they're evil the evil of the Assyrians, of, of the capital city of Nineveh, has come up before me. Which is kind of an interesting phrase, um, but it's one that's sort of familiar if, if one is familiar with the scriptures. Uh, the sin of Nineveh had, in other words, uh, in scriptures, uh, become a stench in the nostrils of the Lord. The city was so wicked, it had gotten so bad that it, would, it, it was as if it reached some sort of a tipping point with God. The only thing left for him to do was to judge them. Consider the great flood in Genesis. Uh, there came a tipping point for God where he, he decided to s- destroy all of mankind and start over with Noah and his family. Or think of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are several such passages that describe this point in human history or in the history of a city or a people Um, And that's where we are with Nineveh. The beauty of our God is that he's also patient. Um, He's slow to anger. Nehemiah 9.17, the prophet Nehemiah, they they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But you, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. The psalmist in Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We we read story after story in Scripture of times when God was patient, so patient. 400 years he waited for Egypt before he took them out and got Israel out of there. 400 years for Egypt to be able to repent. This is the God that we're talking about here. And his patience is tied to his heart for all mankind, what he really wants to desire, uh, what he really desires for them. Uh, check out Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? I hope we're not presuming on that. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, that's God's ultimate goal for all of mankind. That's why he's patient, is because he wants them to eventually understand and enjoy the beauty of a life that's broken before him and that turns from sin and turns to him and says, yes, yes, yes. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 15. This is is one of my favorite passages. The 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When describing the Lord, he's not, he's not slow with his promise keeping. He's going to do that really quickly, but he is going to be slow with you as far as judging you for your sin, as far as being patient with you, allowing you time, because his goal is that each one of us comes to repentance. Is he a good God? He is. So even though the sin of Nineveh had reached this tipping point, God still, through the book of Jonah, we're going to see, is going to give him a chance. He's still going to give them one last chance. That's how patient he is. And honestly, even though the sin of our current generation, the things that we think is, are just normal and good and okay, is also grievous to God, he still wants this generation to repent. And he hasn't given up on it. Do you believe that? Do you? All right, are we ready to be used then to get up and go? One, one final thing to note about this call to Nineveh. Um, we should know this. This was a horrible city. I can't stress that enough. This is the PG-13R type of stuff that I'm talking about. It was violent. It was wicked. Um, I'm going to read you an excerpt from a war bulletin to kind of show you. This was found uh, on some scrolls. This is the kind of men we're talking about. <coughs> I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads and made pyramids thereof. I slew one of every two. I built a wall before the great si gates of the city. I flayed the chief men of the rebels, and I covered the wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some of them were crucified on stakes along the wall. I caused a great multitude of them to be flayed in my presence, and I covered the wall with their skins. I gathered together the heads in the form of crowns and their pierced bodies in the form of garlands. This is violence, and violence for violence sake. This is the type of people that we're talking about. And it wasn't just violence either that the empire was known for. Sexual perversion, idolatry, and sin of every kind were just, they were just normative. They were commonplace. Um, the book of Nahum also calls out against this evil culture, if you want to read more from Scripture. But this is where Jonah was supposed to go. Go there and tell them that God's going to judge you unless you repent. That, that's where you're headed. A city and a people who would not want to hear what Jonah had to say. Not even a little bit. The fact, he could probably expect violence of every kind and maybe death. That's what he should expect. Indignation, defiance, opposition, defensiveness. And it's not hard to see the corollary for you and I because we're called to a culture that actually is, is violently opposed to Jesus right now. A culture where idolatry and sexual sin of every kind is normative and commonplace. We're called to a people who will reply to our message with opposition, defensiveness, defiance, indignation, and quite possibly even a violent response. Now, although we may not today... Uh, be at the kind of risk that Jonah was for death. I think a time is coming, and we 
may not believe it's coming that soon. We may just kind of think that, oh, that's going to be Sunday, maybe my children's children. But I think it's coming sooner than we know where we will face a choice between following Jesus and survival. I think the church needs to be ready for that. I think we need to be ready for that. Yet we're called to this culture that we know is not going to like what we have to say, and yet we're called to do it anyway. We're called to trust in, to believe, to have faith in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're called to obey no matter what the response. We're called to do the right thing no matter what the response. It's one of the hardest things for me in life, honestly. You come against people that just oppose you to oppose you. (laughs) You come up against people that just don't like you because they just seem to choose to not like you. Um, That say mean things or believe mean things without giving you the benefit of the doubt. And and for me, I just want to be like, well, fine. You're you're dead to me then. I, I just want I just want to return their their meanness with meanness because it's kind of a defense mechanism, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of where we go. You're mean to me. I'm going to be meaner, and we're going to make this right. You're kind of a big guy. I can fight you if I have to. That's that's honestly like how my flesh wants to respond. That's not how the Holy Spirit responds, though, is it? Jesus said to turn the other cheek. Jesus. He went through all that suffering and stayed silent. And I think I'm called to do the right thing no matter what the response is going to be to me. To speak with love and with kindness. To actually speak up for truth when it's right. Not in a way that says, I hate you and you're stupid and I discount your person because you do things that I wouldn't do or the Bible says not to do. No. But that says, hey, I love you and I see your value as a human being. But that right there is sin according to God, and I don't get to choose what's sin and what's not. So I'll say it out loud. And the response might be horrible. I might get just flayed. I'm, I, I might get hurt. I might be slandered. I might be ostracized. But being a man who says, I'm going to do what's right by God no matter what the response. That's the kind of man that I want to be because that's courage and that's faith. When God says, get up and go to a people that doesn't want me, (laughs) I get up and go anyway. I love that um, God was ready to destroy this city, and yet he gives them a heads up through Jonah. Because no one's beyond the love of God. I also love that in this story, a people that should not have repented, repent. Again, sorry for all the spoiler alerts. I love that a people that should not have repented. <laughs> it seems impossible that they repent. Because it gives me all sorts of hope. As there's people that I've written off in my mind over the years. There's people that I've thought, now oh, they're too far gone. They're beyond. They've hardened their hearts. They hate the Lord. They won't listen to me. They won't listen to anyone. And God is saying through this book, No, Kevin, don't give up. Don't you dare give up on that soul. Get up and go to him. God can change our hearts and increase our faith that we believe that even that person could be saved. Jonah received the voice of the Lord. 
But it was likely the audible voice of the Lord that it seems like that's what prophets got, which is awesome and epic. And I think, man, I wish I was a prophet. <laughs> I mean, if God would literally just speak to me with a voice I could hear out loud, I know I'd obey him then. I mean, I just know I would. You'd have no choice, right? Just talk to me out loud. Tell me exactly what you want me to do, God, and then I'll walk through it. Because if only I could know exactly what you want me to do. With your voice and your words, wait a second, we do. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because of the relentless love of God, Jesus came and after he'd conquered sin and conquered death, he gave us power to get up and go. He gave us a message that changes lives. And he said, I will be with you always as you go. Get up and go isn't just good luck with that. It's Jesus saying, we're going. It's time to go together. Let's pray.